This Week in Startups is brought to you by Help Scout, the customer service platform built for starting and scaling up. Eligible startups get Help Scout for only $50 a month for 12 months. Visit helpscout.com slash startup to learn more. Masterworks.io, the first company allowing investors exposure into the blue chip artwork asset class. This Week in Startups listeners can skip the 5,000 person wait list by going to i masterworks.io slash twist and tax file the best way to do your taxes is by not doing them at all tax file connects individuals and businesses with trusted cpas that file for you all you have to do is sign up visit taxfile.com slash twist to get 15 percent off your tax return today that's t-a-x-f-y-l-e dot com slash twist Hey, everybody. Welcome to This Week in Startups. Today on the program, a founder who is trying to save moms from dying and or getting hurt in childbirth. It's a real phenomenon here in the United States. You would think in the developed world we would have solved this problem, but there's a lot of unnecessary deaths and unnecessary uh, injuries in childbirth. And I'm really excited to have Melissa Hanna. Hanna? No, Hanna. Hanna. Two N's from Mommy which is spelt phonetically M-A-H-M-E-E.com. Yes. Welcome to the program. Thank you. Tell me, what does mommy do? Um, In this case, your company, mommy. Yes. <laughs> Not the generic mom. <laughs> right. Uh, so our company, mommy, uh, is a comprehensive maternal and infant care management platform. Uh, we are a software and services company, and we partner with a variety of different kinds of healthcare organizations to ensure that moms and babies across the country get access to comprehensive support during pregnancy all the way through baby's first year of life. And this is taking the form of it manifests itself in an app like enterprise software on the back end for the doctors and nurses? Yeah, it's a full service solution. There is an enterprise software experience that um, we integrate into our health system or hospital partners. Uh, there is a consumer facing app as well. Um, and there's also a provider app. So there are three primary components um, that allow for the digital integration of mother and baby's health records across um, an ecosystem, whether that's a an entire health system or even just like a community. How many moms in the United States are doing the protocol correctly? Because I think compliance is a big issue because some people don't know what to do. I know when we had our kids, we had to get this big education and go to classes. How many people are doing it uh, according to the proper protocol? And how many people are, you know, showing up when they're six, seven, eight months pregnant and then starting a protocol here in the United States. And is that the issue? Is it the prenatal, pre-birth, or is it the birth that's the issue? Where are the the challenges? Well, the challenges are in a few different places. Uh, I think that we often look at compliance as being the root issue here, but um, our company doesn't see it that way. When we are on the ground in different cities working with families, um, we see that people really want to do a great job being new parents, and they are eager to uh, participate in their care, um, eager to get help from providers, from community care workers, attend their doctor's office visits. But there are so many barriers to access for a lot of people, and there's other challenges that are just infrastructural in this particular uh, vertical of healthcare that make it difficult even for the most informed and uh, well-off families to uh, have a, a really ideal prenatal and postpartum experience. And we take care of families across the socioeconomic spectrum, um, and we see that uh, it's there's very high motivation to get access to care, but... If you are dealing with uh, either financial barriers, transportation barriers, um, language or education, that can be a whole host of challenges right there um, that our traditional healthcare ecosystem isn't necessarily set up to support, Mm. um, which is why I think there's such a big opportunity for startups to do work in this space. But then on the other end of the spectrum, um, even uh, like I said, for well-off families that you think sort of have all the resources they need to have a great uh, maternity experience, uh, it, the challenge becomes the fact that the industry itself is still just so fragmented that um, you know you still have to go find your OBGYN and find a pediatrician and find a, probably a lot of other um, support providers, ancillary care providers, um, and manage all of that yourself because there aren't a lot of great tools for doing that until now. Does your service uh, go directly to the consumer when they're pregnant and then start them onboarding there or 
do they have to find their doctor and then their doctor introduces them to your service? Uh, well, it works both ways. Okay. So um, families can sign up on their own. They can get access and start managing um, their own care experience right from within the mommy platform. Um, but what we found is that our some of our highest referral channels and, um, and the ways that people are actually um, engaging with us are through referrals from um, their primary care providers. So uh, we we open up a lot of different doors for people to to find out about us, to get access. But then at the end of the day, we do see that once your doctor recommends that you check out Mommy um, or you utilize it as part of your care experience, that's really the ultimate sell. Who, who pays for the service? How do you make money uh, by providing this? Is it the doctors pay for the enterprise software, insurance, or the consumer? Oh, yeah. Well, I think this is what you hear from a lot of health tech companies. We make money in a lot of different ways. I mean, we're still early stage in that yeah. we are refining those uh aspects of the business model and determining like where the highest margins are and where we really want to uh, drill down into to create that strong foundation for growth. But the reality of a company like ours at this stage is that patients pay on their own if they want to. Um, providers will pay. Sometimes we have partnerships directly with uh, like a med group or a doctor's office that says, hey, we want to make this available to all of our patients. Um, and then we also partner, and this is really where a lot of the new growth is happening, is this enterprise side, which is that very large organizations are coming to us and saying, we are a chain of hospitals. We are maybe an, um, a regional health center, um, a county or state-funded Medicaid program. And we have the resources to actually implement this for our entire patient population, which could be um, thousands or tens of thousands of patients. And in doing so, they they will see the greatest ROI from working with a company like ours. And what does it cost them? $100 a patient, $500 a patient to run through the, the protocols and the application? Yeah. So we offer like a monthly subscription and that's based on risk level. So, uh -huh. um, you know, anyone can join and there's a completely free experience that allows for managing care, um, receiving uh, personalized education and support periodically, uh, getting check-ins from mm -hmm. the mommy care management team. So we don't want to curb access for anyone, but then um, based on how much sort of the scope of care that you need, it's not about quality. It's about just how much additional support do you need? That goes up from $20 a month to um, potentially a very um, high-risk, uh, high-need patient that could be as much as $200 a month, but would otherwise cost their health system thousands of dollars that month. What, what does it cost in the United States to have a baby right now? I, I've heard that in the Nordic countries, people have to pay like $200 or something to have a baby. And then here, it's tens of thousands of dollars on average. Am I correct? Is what I've read correct? Yes, the numbers are outstanding when it comes to birth in the United States. Um, it can cost 5 to 10x the amount that it would cost for your total maternity experience um, in uh, in the UK, in um, Nordic countries. Uh, that's uh, and, and there are even some wider gaps there as well. But looking at developed nations, it's hands down, it's a well-known fact now that we spend way more than any other developed nation to... Uh, successfully, you know, deliver children in this country, and we still get the worst results in return. So it really is um, a paradox. It actually has a name. It's called the perinatal paradox. We pay the most and have the least success. We we have yeah. the highest. We have the highest maternal mortality rate, <sighs> and we still have far too high um, infant mortality and injury rates. So we're it's gone down. We've invested a lot of of time. Um, technology, uh, research into reducing the infant mortality rate. But while we paid all this attention to babies over the past three decades to to provide better care to uh, to new babies, we kind of like let moms go on the side there and did not pay attention to those rates as they continue to rise. And they have um, decade over decade uh, risen. Moms are dying yes. more than they used to. Yes. Babies, we've done a great job of We're lowering that. Mm -hmm. Why? What happened? Oh, well, there. I, I go back to the the structure of the industry. Um, um, you hear this phrase a lot that there are gaps in care, um, that the industry is fragmented. And this is true for a lot of aspects of um, the U.S. healthcare system. It's especially true when you get into maternal and child health. Um, I, I'm biased. This is 
this is the industry that I, I've decided to build a company in. So yeah. I know it really well compared to other verticals. But I can say that um, when I try and explain to people like why it's so complicated to take care of moms and babies, and it's something that everyone can rally around, you know, <laughs> regardless yeah. of what side of the aisle you're on. Like, I think everyone we've all wants, been like, there babies. by definition. Yeah. <laughs> we've all been the baby in this situation. Yeah, and so. a large percentage of us have been the mom. Right. So, you know, everyone can say uh, with a rallying cry that we want to do better by moms and babies. But when you look at the reality of um, what it means to take care of moms and babies, uh, I say like from a data standpoint, let's just take that as a, as a, a section of this. Um, one patient turns into two, sometimes three, <laughs> you twins, you know, yeah. um, and or more so. And so you have one storyline, you have one data set that you've been tracking that would be this prenatal patient and um, and everything revolves around this prenatal experience. Now there's childbirth, and now you've got a new patient with a new doctor. They're going to have a pediatrician. Mom's going to have an OB or other primary care provider. So you just split the data set. Now you're tracking two different users of this in this system. They each have their own care management teams, folks that are responsible for their care. And there's very little overlap unless there really are complications or issues that could affect mom or baby one way or the other. The pediatrician and the OB, they're not always talking to each other uh, unless uh, they need to be. And that's just the way it's set up. It's not to malign the care providers. It's just the reality that so communication is a big piece of this. And they're exactly. very busy and it's a business. Yes. And and that's not their patient. The OB's patient is not the baby and the pediatrician's patient is not the mom. So their liability and their focus is going to be on their patient, which is right. te- technically Completely separate. not holistic. They also, after about three months, your baby has their own insurance plan. So now the insurance company's well, that's a different customer. And now it's even further become its own data set. So there's not been a lot of integration from, from a data standpoint. And if if we aren't looking at that foundation of how do we recognize within technology, within um, sort of the digital um, infrastructure here, the, the mother-baby dyad as they truly are biologically, right. they're still connected. Yes. Um, but if, if we aren't treating them that way within our, you know, our, our digital tool set, then we're already flawed from day one. And so that's the first thing that mommy did was we link mom and baby's health record together. We recreate the dyad view within the technology so that you're looking at a, a picture of mother and baby's health and wellness together rather than as two separate uh, data sets. All right. When we get back from this quick commercial break, I want you to address the shocking, depressing, and just outrageous statistic uh, that you shared with me earlier that black mothers are three to four times more likely to die from birth complications here in the United States and why that is and how we can stop something that's just so immoral and unacceptable when we get back on this week's startup. Do you know it costs five times as much to acquire a new customer as it does to keep and delight one of your existing ones? Of course you do. You're watching This Week in Startups. Well, how do you do that? Well, you need to build a strong relationship with your customers. And without those raving fans, those people who are promoting your product, your business does not stand a chance. But you can't earn these raving fans with basic software that treats customers just like a ticket. Well, help scout was created to fix that problem. And some of my favorite companies use it. It's a customer service platform designed to help you with customers in mind. And there's no tickets, there's no robo emails, none of that impersonal stuff, just conversations with real people, your team and your customers talking to each other with a simple all-in-one product. And that product puts all of your email into a shared inbox so nobody falls through the cracks And you got that built-in live chat, which is quickly becoming the standard. That's now the default. And a help center for self-service content, which can be embedded in your website in minutes. Over 10,000 of the world's most customer-centric businesses like Superhuman, one of my favorite companies that I invested in. And Zapier, another company I love. And Trello, another company I invested in and love as well as Basecamp and Figma, other great companies. I missed those. I didn't get to invest in those. These are the companies that have passionate, passionate users. And the reason they do is not just because they make a great product. It's because they got great customer support. That's what Help Scout does. And eligible startups, the ones with under $1 million in funding and that are less than two years old, can access everything on Help Scout for only $50 a month. Visit helpscout.com slash startup to learn more. Help, H-E-L-P, 
scout, S-C-O-U-T, dot com slash startup. Go there right now. Get this great deal. I don't know how long it's going to last. Helpscout.com slash startup. And thanks for supporting our companies. I really do appreciate that. And thanks for making the customers of our companies so, so delighted. Okay, let's get back to this delightful episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. My guest is Melissa Hanna and uh, Hannah, sorry. I'm going to keep doing that. I, I spent my honeymoon in Hana in Maui. Well, that's which nice. Is one N. <laughs> and not Hannah. my name. <laughs> not your name, Hannah. <laughs> uh, and she is the CEO and co-founder of Mommy, uh, which is spelled M-A-H-M-E-E.com if you want to go check it out. She's been working on it for the past five or six years mm-hmm. and um, recently received funding from none other than Mark Cuban and Serena Williams. Nicely done. We'll talk about that in a bit. And a friend of the pod... Arlen Hamilton, I believe, was your first investor. Yes. Yeah. She was the first uh, VC check into the company. We had some angels before that, but Arlen took yeah. the first big step with us. It's amazing. You know, uh, when she was on the pod two years ago, just when she had started making that first, what was it, a $3 million fund or something? She was making 50, 100K investments. Mm-hmm. And um, we talked a little bit about it, and she had mentioned you. And it's really great to see which of those companies actually make it to the Series A or multiple, you know, two or three million dollar round. And you've done that. Um, how did you wind up meeting her, Arlen? I was introduced to Arlen through Marlon Nichols from Cross Culture Ventures, oh. now at Mac Ventures. Um, I pitched uh, him and, and his team early on, and and got the the response a lot of founders get is you're too early. Yeah. Um, but uh, but then with the follow-up of I've got some folks I want to connect you to and really followed through on that and um, got us connected to Arlen and then Arlen invested. And then later, actually, Marlon became an investor. And now he's um, a very active uh, board um, advisor and um, investor in the company. How amazing was it to meet a black venture capitalist woman which is one of, I think, five in the industry at the time. And I know all five of them because they've all been on the pod. How did it make you feel to meet a peer like that and uh, have them make that bet on you? Well, I think uh, it's important to say that at the stage that that we were at when we met Arlen, I mean, she did not appear as a peer to me. I mean, I was still shaking in my boots to pitch anyone. Right. Um, so I was, uh, all I remember was being so nervous that I, I don't remember what I said to her, but um, she seemed intrigued and she wanted to keep talking. And uh, we, we stayed in contact as she was starting to put together that fund and start to write checks out of there. Um, and that being backstage capital. So uh, within, um, within a few months of building out that relationship and getting to know the other folks that she was um, bringing onto her team, they made an investment um, in the company. We became one of the first, um, like the backstage 100, one of the first 100 companies yeah. that she put checks into. So, yeah, I was I was very nervous to meet her, especially because I had heard that she was a force to be reckoned with and that she was going to be doing some very big things in the industry. Um, and over the years now, we've gotten to know each other very well, and it's been amazing to build this company alongside her. Yeah, she's a force, that's for sure. I mean, she's just took her spot like she's like i'm gonna raise a fund and i'm gonna invest and yeah give me money let's go let anyone stop her yes yeah i mean it is truly amazing uh what she's done and yeah now to see the companies now starting to come to fruition i think that's going to be like the magic right because when you first start everybody's just like well you placed whatever 100 bets let's see what let's see which ones come out and so to Which see ones? these companies getting yeah. funded now, um, ours just being one of them right. that uh, that have have been able to level up and um, attract additional investors and uh, some high profile folks. Uh, yeah, like- Mark Cuban <laughs> yes. just gave her a million bucks in between funds and said, "Hey, listen, let's invest together." That was an amazing moment. And she brought Mark Cuban to this company, <laughs> and he and he came, and he immediately just invested. Um, I wouldn't say immediately. Yeah. <laughs> He's quick. He invested in my second well, company. Okay, he did commit quickly, but he did, I, yes. but the period of time between the introduction to Mark and the commit was for me like the longest period of time ever. <laughs> it was maybe a lapsed time like seventy two hours. It felt like months. Yeah, <laughs> because we were emailing back and forth. Um, He's an email guy. Rapidly. Rapidly. I, I've heard this now from other founders who have worked with them at the Three time. in the morning email. Yeah, yeah. With an analysis of your strategy, with really tough questions, and then you reply at 4 a.m., and then you get a reply at 6 a.m. And you're like, Mark, where are you right now? <laughs> <laughs> Do you sleep? 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, this... And the answer is no. He is so passionate about entrepreneurship and founders yes. that he is one of the most responsive people I've ever had on a cap table. So imagine then being on an email thread with Mark and Arlen and the, and the three of us like going at this and debating My all mind. aspects of this company. And I'm like... First of all, I, I've known Arlen now for a few years. So like, okay, I know she gets it, and she's um, never been afraid to just dig into the details and really grill me on stuff. And I've got Mark in this email thread. Yeah. And I'm like, he Billionaire seems to owner actually of the Mavericks. right, but he really cares about he this. Cares. He got it, and he immediately um, just jumped into the stuff that really matters about what we're doing, and yeah. um, wasn't wasn't there for the fluff, wasn't there for uh, the uh, you know like the. The superficial part about being in like femtech and women's yeah. health and the fact that, yeah, there's a lot of money coming into this market now, a lot of companies yeah. getting early stage funding. He really got the business model. The great part about Mark is he wants to win. You know, he just and he's told that to me many times when I've asked him, like, why are you doing this angel investing? Like you're so post doing this kind of level of investing. And he just gets jazzed by being part of an early team that wins. Mm -hmm. He put three hundred thousand dollars into Weblogs Inc., my second company, and he I must have, you know, I'm not kidding, three or 400 emails from him a year, like almost daily, just talking about blogs and media and everything, and was one of the most helpful and supportive investors I've ever had in my uh, career. When we left for the break, uh, we started discussing and we teed up this horrific statistic, uh, black mothers three to four times more likely to die between because of birth complications. To what do you attribute this? And I asked that question with just horrible trepidation of, you yeah, know, like, please don't tell me this is just like they're being ignored by doctors and being treated as like second class moms. That is what it is, though. It <sighs> is systemic racism and um, institutionalized, uh, uh, well, really, uh, oppression. I mean, this, the, the bias that uh, is... Um, experienced by black and brown women in this country, and specifically by black mothers um, that are going through uh, this, uh, going through the maternity process, going through um, this episode of care, is um, so. It's such a stark contrast to um, what white women are experiencing yeah. that there's there have been a lot of studies to try and explain the health outcomes. Because what we're talking about here, and you say three to four times more likely uh, to die, um, that's a health outcome. And so, yeah. you know, first researchers try and figure out, well, is it a biological thing? Is it something different about their experience being pregnant? Or is it diff something different about, you know, and looking at these populations and trying to figure out if, if it's it something there. Is it socioeconomic? Is it regional? And when you control for all of these things, it comes down to systemic racism and bias, <sighs> not being heard, not being listened to. These being dismissed. Yes. Literally a mom, based on the color of her skin, having her concerns dismissed. Right. And as as someone who's building this company and um, is also myself, a black woman, um, I'm mixed. But I know that being mixed does not matter in this story. Yeah. I present as black. And yeah. um, that's that puts me in the same boat as anyone else um, who is very likely to face um, racism in the healthcare industry. And uh, when you look at the stories across the board and you you see that it's not about um, your education level it's not about your income um, it's about what what others are perceiving yeah. um, about you and it's it's so wrong so yeah. a lot of what we do is um, within our own company is uh, understanding like how bias works and works against women within um, the maternity industry we look at how we can listen better to um, what families are reporting and what women are reporting in their experience, um, how different people describe different pain uh, types, uh, um, complications, <clears throat> uh, social and emotional experiences. Not everyone says, hey, I'm depressed. Right? Yeah. Most people don't actually say that. No, I mean, that is one of the big challenges about postpartum depression is that people feel shame or they don't want to burden people with their depression, whether it's even pregnancy or non-depression, they don't want to burn people. And the people they don't want to burn are the people who want to help the most. Yes. Yes. It's um, 
it's really important to, we call it like listening between the lines. Mm-hmm. Um, and this comes from training, not just in healthcare, but in training on how to um, really be an advocate for the patient. Right. And a lot of what we're doing in our relationships with health systems, when we partner with a customer, or we would call them like a health organization partner, is that we're acting as that intermediary. We're saying, look, we're better at this than you guys are. Let us help manage these relationships with patients and surface very quickly for you who needs help when. Yeah. Someone who um, may might have historically not been paid attention to or might have been disregarded. You know, I'm really uncomfortable right now. Something doesn't feel right down there or I'm worried about the baby or something like that. Might have been brushed off. Oh, you're tough. You can handle it. Don't worry. You know, lady, you just had a baby. Yeah, Yeah. that's what it's going to feel like for a while. We are able to really ascertain what's what's actually going on and determine who needs to be seen right away. And we're able to get patients in the next day to see their doctors. That's fantastic. I know when we went through our births, my wife is an Asian woman, and they don't have it. Uh, I think the bias is not obviously as bad as black women experience, but they experience bias as well. Yes. Women experience bias, period. And I had to hold the line a lot of times with the doctors to slow down and to explain it to me twice. And I had to just step in and say, I'm sorry, I don't understand what you're saying. I'd like you to slow down and explain it to me again. And I'd like you to explain it to me in simpler terms because I don't understand what you're saying. And of course, I say it. White guy says it uh, in a commanding voice. And all of a sudden, oh, of course, sir, let me. And my wife asked the same question and they just roll right over her. And it was infuriating to me. And we went with female doctors because I felt like the male doctors were so uh, brisk so like uh, just wanting to get out of there so quick. And that to me seems like one of the problems. You know, labor is a long process. And one of the things that a female doctor told me, I won't say which one, obviously, was that a lot of times the male doctors were not as patient and just didn't want to stay in the hospital that long. So they would just induce. They're like, listen, I, you know, I don't want to be here 20 hours for labor. I want to get this done. So I'm going to push the person to induce this labor and get it done in a shorter period of time. In America, are we rushing and pushing people to go too fast in the child in the in the childbirth process? I think that is one aspect. There are some um, studies that have come out that have looked closely at um, inductions and C-section rates and uh, specifically by hospitals or by regions. Um, There's work being done now, even looking sort of drilling down to physicians and understanding patterns there. Um, there are a lot of conflicting. Are probably going faster than others. Yes, it, that does happen, and I, I'm not sure that it actually splits on a gender line. That that um, definitively, uh, there are probably some female doctors as well that are um, handling patients in a different way. Yeah. I, I will say though that there are a lot of conflicting interests within the U.S. healthcare system, mm. and those are amplified within a complex space like maternal and child care. Mm-hmm. So, yes, if you've got if you've got a doctor who gets paid for the delivery and is trying to get as many deliveries done as possible, then there may be a change in approach in order to optimize for that. Now, right. I I see these as being this is why I talk about the infrastructure of the industry. I see these as being like market effects that yeah. just, you know, kind of pull back the curtain on how this the industry's poorly set up for for good healthcare outcomes yeah, <laughs> because we know people need time. If you're paying by the baby and by the birth, well, of course, the factory wants to go faster and have more babies come out of it. Right. Whereas if you just paid by the day and didn't matter or by the hour, then it would change the incentive system. Yes. And they uh, actually might even be incented to go longer. There's, But there's also other players that could facilitate a better care experience like midwives, doulas, um, other birth professionals, birth birth educators, and postpartum support professionals, um, including lactation consultants, who can all participate and all should be able to participate in providing more supportive, more um, like calm and mother-focused care during that time, rather than only putting it on the doctors and on the hospital setting. The problem is that the 
insurance industry, for the most part, doesn't insure that kind of care in, in a standard fashion. Some programs do. Maybe your employer has tacked on additional benefits for you to get breastfeeding help or for you to have a doula come um, help you prepare for your labor and delivery. And all that stuff is great, but it's not happening at scale for most of the patients across the country. So when you look at what could actually enhance the maternity experience and produce better outcomes overall, you know, we are spending all this money, but we're not actually spending it in ways that directly benefit the patient. Mm. Um, so costs are going up on the things that we're already paying for. It's getting more expensive to uh, stay in a hospital. It's getting more expensive to have specialty care. Um, and a lot of those um, medical elements of labor and delivery are covered. But what about the uh, labor, sort of <laughs> the labor process in preparing to go to the hospital? Right. You know, if you have support during that time, if you have a doula or you have a birth worker who's who's coaching you and preparing you for that, um, you can have a much more successful experience in in childbirth. Same with postpartum. Even if, for example, we see hospitals that are saying, look, we got to get patients out of here in 48 hours. We don't get paid for the third day. <laughs> so oh, you wow. have two days here and we're going to discharge you as long as you are well enough to go home. Now, that may be the hospital's imperative from a financial or operational standpoint. Um, what What we do as a company is pretty much come in and say, we get that you may not be able to change that. We'd like to see these patients be able to rest and recover a little longer. Yeah. But if you've got to send them home, at least send them home with a program with support that continues that experience for them so that you literally aren't just sending them out the door. Um, and and that's a lot of the pitch that we make is we say we cannot change the entire system on day one. We have to work within some of the un unfortunate confines of the industry as it yeah. stands today. It is the most... I would say the three most difficult verticals for any founder to take on are housing slash construction, um, education, and then the toughest of all is healthcare. And how will, when we get back this break, I, I want you to tell me how you know you'll have been successful in this business to make it sustainable uh, in order to keep being able to get funding and, and what are your internal goals and metrics that you tell the team to rally around when we get back on the Sweden Startups? Listen, in 2018, VCs invested a total of $100 billion in the United States. But did you know there is a $1.7 trillion asset class that is uncorrelated with public equities and has outperformed the S&P? And there's no institutional investors allocating to it. Think about this for a second. What category is this? Uncorrelated with public equities, outperformed the S&P, and has no institutional investors allocating to it. Masterworks.io is the first company to allow any type of investor, whether retail or accredited, to gain exposure to blue chip artwork. This year, roughly $68 billion in art will trade hands between collectors around the globe. You know this. You hear people talking about it, and you see the headlines. Deloitte estimates the size of the blue chip artwork asset class to be $1.7 trillion. All of these transactions are between individuals. Think about that. There is no way to invest in this asset class unless you purchase a painting, right? That's kind of a bummer. You're going to buy this painting. How do you know which one to buy? What do you do with it once you get it? Masterworks.io is changing everything by being the first platform to file paintings with the SEC. In the same process that a company goes public, they are taking Masterworks, artworks, and making them go public. What a brilliant idea. And then they sell shares in these artworks to individuals, me, you, everybody else. Masterworks has 30,000 investors signed up and using its platform. That is unbelievable. So here's your call to action. I want you to go to i.masterworks.io slash twist to skip the 5,000-person wait list. That's right, i.masterworks.io slash T-W-I-S-T. Okay, let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, welcome back to This Week in Startups. We're talking about the business of being born. It's a good documentary. Um, so how do you know, I mean, you're taking on healthcare as a startup, which has so many incumbents, so many rules, as you mentioned. It's so hard to get people to change behavior. How do you know you'll be successful? Can you make this work just on the subscriptions, or do you have to make the enterprise work? And I know it's early days, but how do you rally your team around those key metrics that are success, and have you figured out what those are yet? Oh, that's a great question, because 
I am, I'm always living in the future of this company. I think yeah. as a founder, like that's the struggle is you, you have to be here for present day operations, but also be, you know, three to six months ahead on where you want to take the company next. And, um, and in balancing those things, I look at, um, sort of, as I referred to before that the confines that we have to work within right now, understanding that the industry, um, has, created an opportunity for a company like ours to be successful because it's so messed up, honestly. Right. So we're, we have to first take what, what we're being handed, which is an industry that is fragmented, that is poorly structured, that doesn't have very strong, um, digital tools or, um, uh, really opportunities for, for data analytics. Looking at that first and where we'd see success in the near term is in, creating these demonstration projects across the country with the most eager candidates. Now, mm. the unfortunate reality of what that looks like from a from a, um, sort of a sales or like customer pipeline perspective is that there are a lot of folks that realize this is a problem and want to do something about it. But the folks who are most eager are the ones who are dealing with the crisis directly. Mm. So um, as we build out our pipeline, we, we get a lot of inbound from a lot of folks and, and we're constantly sorting through and People will say, well, we need help here. What can you do for us? Well, there's a lot that can be done. There's a lot that's uh, that's possible in um, innovation within this space. How serious are you about making that change? And so mm -hmm. finding those folks who are very serious usually means that they have the biggest crises on their hands. Right. They, they have sort of this intersection of uh, the need for a financial or operational restructuring of their healthcare services, right? That's where they're losing money. They're spending money taking care of patients that uh, after the fact, after they've gotten injured or sick or are on death's door because they weren't providing enough oversight and care management in advance of these situations, right? So that's where mommy can come in and actually provide proactive monitoring and support to a maternity population and prevent things from getting um, very serious and, and, and uh, very risky and costly. So we look for organizations that are that are in need of of that sort of um, ROI and we know we can create it for them because it's just about introducing proactive care management to their systems. We also realize that a lot of our customers are dealing with PR crises, that they're coming yeah. to us because something has happened mm -hmm. and they now need to show that they are correcting that problem within their organization. Right. This so is, yeah. Mother dies, God forbid, and they were at fault because of I guess the leading cause is um, blood loss, mm -hmm. sepsis. Hemorrhage. Yeah, sepsis. Yes, these, these are, are the things that we are actively acute, monitoring for. Yeah, yeah. Um, and and all of the other costly complications that don't result in death, but can really drive up the um, the overall cost of the operation of delivering maternity and pediatric care within your organization. Um, we shouldn't, like just across the board, we should not be waiting for people to get sick to take care of them. Right. We need to find better ways across the country, across all aspects of healthcare to invest in wellness. Mm. And there are so many companies that are committed to doing this, not just ours. It's just really hard to break into the industry. So to answer your question about, well, what does it then look like to be successful over time? Um, it's about how do you get past that first batch of folks that are incredibly enthusiastic and incredibly in need of your innovative offering and start to change hearts and minds um, across the industry? Right. We know that it won't happen overnight. Um, and in fact, this is a, a years long process. But the metrics we look for internally are around having that um the sort of the multi-bottom line effect where we are not only are we able to make money doing the thing we're doing in a sustainable way, but beyond that for our organization partners, that they are seeing a financial return on investment working with us, that it's also providing that benefit they need in PR, right, in a, a storytelling fashion, that it's actually creating profitability and, and um, new lines of revenue for them. Because if we're actually doing right by prenatal and postpartum patients for our health organization partners, that retains customers to their organization. Ah, people come back for the second and third baby. Exactly. If they feel they've been treated respectfully and there's a process and they were listened to. Mm -hmm. yeah. So uh, yeah. we're very invested in that, in showing that um, this kind of care management approach, this proactive engagement, isn't just about the dollars and cents of that particular episode of care. It's about creating a long-term relationship that is um, that is respectful, that is uh, compassionate and in introduces dignity into this process. Paying yeah. attention to what patients actually need is what keeps any anyone happy, yeah. <laughs> any customer happy. I mean, this has been the very, this has been at the core of the problem in America is that the customers are not 
treated as customers because in some cases their insurance is paying, not them. Mm -hmm. And so the healthcare providers are like, well, your insurance is paying. That's the customer to us. That's who we're billing. You just happen to be the vehicle by which they pay us. Yes. Yeah. These these are the complications of this industry, or the complexities, not the complications, but the complexities that um, make it hard for any startup to navigate this space. And early mm-hmm. on, we we had to figure out like, well, what are the metrics that matter? Because the organizations don't always know. They just know that they have a problem on their hands mm. and they are sort of reaching out, grasping into the market to say, can anyone help us? Does anyone have something right. that could be the semblance of a solution? What do they perceive the problem as? That they're just not communicating well or that the patients are not informed enough about the the process? They don't know what a doula is. They don't know mm. what Lamaze class is. They don't know what lactation is. And if they just walk them through that compassionately and you know, in a systematic approach, those people would have their anxiety go down. They would feel like more informed consumers and then tell people, I had a great experience here and you get more customers. Yeah. I mean, all of those things. Uh, I think that the the buzzword is engagement. That uh-huh. is what a lot of our um, partners are looking for. And it's what a lot of startups are selling too. Yeah. Um, it, patient engagement means a lot of different things though. And what a lot of our folks, uh, folks that are that sort of we get inbound interest from, are looking for engagement metrics because they think if only the patients would respond to us, or if only we could find a way to communicate more actively with them, then that would solve the problem. And that sort of suggests that underlying um, uh, stereotype, like that it's a compliance issue. Right. Oh, the patients just don't know any better, or they're not showing up, they're not following up, they're not calling back. When the reality is that there aren't a lot of really great protocols in place to do this proactive care in the first place. Mm-hmm. So it's Patients, for us, we have very high engagement. That's not our issue. (laughs) That's for us that um, it's because of the relationships we build with these patients. It's one of the nice things about apps and the mobile smartphone is that it's always with you and it notifies you of things. And if you just think about any exercise app or Uber or, you know, a finance app on your phone – you feel well taken care of by those companies. They tell you when the car's coming. They tell you when your food's coming. They tell you when it's arrived. You can give them feedback and rate the food or rate the driver or, you know, get an easy return. Yes. And none of that exists. None of that none of that's happening. Yes. Exists in the most important thing a human could possibly do, which is create another life. Like yeah. an Uber driver or a Postmates experience is monumentally more well thought out than the average birth. Right. Well, imagine then being across from, well, an investor yeah. <laughs> in this this exact kind of dynamic where yeah. uh, what I, I knew us to be pitching and building in our earliest days wasn't actually like some genius, brilliant, uh, you know, gr- Nobel Peace Prize winning thing. It was like, hey, can we do that in this vertical? Right. Like that, that the ROI, that the opportunity to have an impact, but like, Beyond, I, I use I say ROI a lot because I, I think it's um it's not well discussed that this is a multi billion dollar industry. Maternity and infant healthcare uh, comes out to the tune of about one hundred and sixty billion dollars in spending annually across across the board, public and private. Whether you're Medicaid or you've got insurance through your your employer, wherever it's coming from, we're spending a lot of money, and we're not getting great results for it. So I always come back to like. Could there be a better signal that this is an opportunity ripe for disruption if the numbers are so far off? There's a ton of money sloshing around and a horrible experience. Exactly. And so just introducing what we call care management, but what anyone else would call like customer relations, (laughs) customer service, um, and doing it in a way that is personalized, that understands your particular story and your needs and speaks into those is incredibly powerful. And in this particular industry when you when you layer that kind of stuff that you just referred to over this particular industry you actually save lives mm. and so that's the final thing that we're counting like literally <laughs> we count how many people we facilitated a life-saving intervention for right. now we're not the ones sending out the ambulance we're not the ones that are taking the patient's blood pressure we're the ones listening as and getting to the patient as quickly as possible to identify whether or not they are at risk for a very serious complication and if you think about it talking to a doctor versus chatting over SMS with a doctor or a messaging platform or just answering a question in a survey, you're likely to get a better uh, result from not talking to a doctor. 
Yes. But just chatting with a doctor or answering a survey, correct? Right. When we talk to people, I mean, I'll give you really the best example of this. And I've shared this story um, in a few places before about a patient where we intervened and escalated this case to the physician's attention. Tell us this when we get back from this final break. You small business owner, you're self-employed, and you just want to get your taxes done, and you want to get them done by a professional you can trust. You don't want to make mistakes on your taxes, obviously. You want to nail it. You want to slam dunk it. Well, freelancers and gig economy workers and even individuals with capital gains tax, that's complex, and you got a lot of stock holdings, huh? like me, I have to deal with this. Well, tax file is the answer. T-A-X-F-Y-L-E. And you're going to get your taxes done without having to waste all this time looking for the perfect CPA. Nope. You're going to get the perfect CPA with tax file. They're going to find that person and they're trusted by over 50,000 customers across the country. Tax file is an on-demand tax filing app that connects consumers with professional CPAs within minutes. You don't have to spend months and years trying to find the right person, firing people. Nope, they vetted everybody. And these CPAs are routed to jobs based on specialization. So you can rest assured that you're always going to be connected with the right pro for the right job. And TaxFile offers safe, secure document sharing. That's table stakes. They get that right. In-app communication between you and your pro, they get that right, as well as crystal clear transparency throughout every step of the process. Nothing to be afraid of. You got to do your taxes. You got to do them right. And you got to use TaxFile. So go ahead and visit TaxFile.com slash twist and you'll get 15% off your return up to 20 bucks. That's TaxFile, T-A-X-F-Y-L-E.com slash twist to get 15% off. Remember, that's TaxFile, F-Y-L-E. All right. Thanks again to TaxFile for supporting the podcast. And let's get back to this amazing episode. All right, Melissa, you're about to tell me uh, before we went to break about one of the stories of literally saving lives. Yes, literally saving lives. Quite literally. <laughs> the, uh, th- this, this story was escalating this patient's concerns to the physician's attention in a way that uh, prevented a a very serious life threatening situation from occurring, um, and it was the simple act of having a conversation with this patient about something that mattered to her. Um, and in this case, it was a mom with a five day old baby. Uh, she had been onboarded the day before by her pediatrician. She had otherwise had a healthy pregnancy, and from the looks of her her health record, which we get that integrated as part of the mommy experience, um, a pretty healthy delivery. There was a little bit of um, a, a well, say a little bit of blood loss and, and a little bit of tearing, but nothing overwhelming. They sent her home after 48 hours in the hospital. So she's looking good on paper. But on, on day five, after 24 hours of being a member of mommy and marking as, as part of her profile that she wanted some breastfeeding help, someone reached out to her from our team and asked her how things are going. She asked some questions back. It was all very casual. It was around holding the baby properly, breastfeeding, and then shared, you know, my left hand and my left foot keep twitching uncontrollably and it's making it hard to hold the baby properly because, you know, my left hand keeps shaking. Should I be worried about that? It was uh, just like an is this normal kind of question. Yeah. Well, that's not normal and we never want half of your body to be shaking and twitching uncontrollably. Um, and uh, this is the kind of thing that our team is specifically trained to listen and identify very quickly. Right. Now, we don't need to diagnose her. It's not our job to do that. As care managers, we are there to engage with the patient identify the risks, and then make sure they're getting routed to care as quickly as possible. We said, you know, hold the phone. We have to get your OB on the phone for that. I mean, really, this was literally pick up the phone, call the OB's office and say, you know, we've got a concern here based on on what she's just shared. Um, Connected the patient back to the provider. And the doctor said, you know, this is pretty serious. Uh, I had a feeling that this could be the beginning of septic shock. Yes, because this was this was nerve damage. If your body is twitching, those are your nerves are responding to something. Yes. Well, as it turned out, she had a pretty severe infection that developed in the few days after having this her baby. Is when bacteria gets in the blood. And exactly. Yeah, it is a literal killer. Yes, this I mean, is one of the things that mothers and babies die from um, in the days and weeks following childbirth, and so the the doctor's like, "Oh, I had no idea." I mean, she looked fine when I sent her home, right? right? So you imagine the doctor's like. You know, processing this information, saying, okay, are you sure? We, yeah, we, we just talked to her. We messaged with her. We picked up the phone, spoke to her on the phone, verified the symptoms, um, sent this digital record over to the physician's office. The doctor said, send her into urgent care. I'll meet her there. She was admitted overnight, put on three courses of antibiotics, um, and treated in the hospital. 
Now, there's still a baby in the story, right? So part of what we do is now work with the partner and the rest of the family to figure out how we're going to care for this baby while mom's in the hospital. Yeah. So that's the other part of the story that I think gets lost when we talk about, you know, tech startups and healthcare. It's like you, you can't just be the hero that ca- caught the patient that was sick. You also have to facilitate the continuance of, of care. You have to continue that patient and the rest of the, uh, the care team's work with that family. Um, in this case, we had to notify the pediatrician and say, hey, Mom just went in for a few days into the hospital. Um, this may change the care plan for the baby. Yeah. Especially if this baby was being breastfed. Baby's not being breastfed right now. Right. We're back so, on formula. Right. Exactly. That be hard. Yeah. That's and so providing that support and then um, working on the transition home. She came home a couple days later. She wanted to go back to breastfeeding. So now we're back on providing breastfeeding support. Right. So all of this is happening. And, and that balance between live support and automated education is really the beauty of what we do is understanding that this is a high risk patient. We're going to spend the time on the phone. We're going to be messaging directly. We're not just going to be like, you know, having the, the system send out articles to her. Yeah. And if you just think about the power of a computer of software checking in with a list of things that people can answer, you know, those lists save lives. That's why they have checklists on airplanes. And one pilot talks to the other and says, okay, check this, check that. That's why doctors in surgery have checklists and they talk about, is this clean? Is that clean? And we're going in with this. And software is a great way to do it because a doctor is going to remember to call every single patient or the nurse or the receptionist. Are they going to forget a question? Of course. But if you if you do it on software and they don't answer the question, you can email them. You can text them. You can annoy them until they answer the question. If they don't answer the question, then you can call them. Right. And this is the the key thing is that we know we're not annoying patients. We, we don't feel bad about this. We are really very focused yeah. on staying engaged with and in communication with the patients, um, understanding that this is part of a, a bigger picture. And if we are having challenges there, then there are other ways to, per, to provide support and figure out what's going on. Um, and in fact, sometimes it's a red flag, you know, on, in its own – um, on its own that a patient isn't engaged and we have to figure out what's going on. Sometimes I'll say, you know what, I, I actually don't really like my doctor or I don't feel like my doctor's listening to me. So oh, wow. if I... So they're avoiding it. Right. And we see this especially within um, within communities of color uh-huh. that there is a distrust and, there, and yep. it w- goes both ways and that you will sometimes have a patient say, well, I don't want to tell my doctor that I'm struggling because I don't want them to call... I mean, we hear story people call Child Protective Services on, on a mother who's struggling uh-huh. and... And it's like, well, why? Why did you do that? Be, there's, there's bias. There, there's, right. there are assumptions so if a being black made. Black woman says, "I am feeling depressed or suicidal ideation." You might actually she have, may have the a different child response. taken yeah. away. Yes, from as her... opposed to the white woman who would have a psychologist sent over with some. This is the reality and... of what's happening, and I think this is not being addressed often enough. It, it right. doesn't come up it's enough. It's hard to in... talk about. Like, look, it's we're tough. talking about and it's, it. It's hard. And yeah. we're already like uncomfortable just you and I talking about yes. it. It makes us uncomfortable to talk about. What what if you're the people who are experiencing? What if you're the doctor and the patient? Right. They're going to have a tremendously hard time. And, and what percentage of women experience some form of postpartum depression? It is very significant. It's Yeah, it's higher than, uh, well, we, we believe it to be higher than what is reported in most studies. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, I think, a misunderstanding of what postpartum depression is, what it looks like, and the way that patients report their experience of it. Right. You know, it's you just went through a hormonal boomerang in having a child. Right. You're going to you're going to feel a certain way afterwards. You yeah. know, it's it um there are there are certain uh manifestations that are that are normal as part of the course of recovery um that are emotional, physiological, behavioral. Um but then what happens when you go beyond that zone and how quickly can we intervene and provide a supportive experience to help you get um you know, sort of back to normal again. Right. Um, that is where a, a lot of the the challenges are right now is that we're not screening people often enough. We are not um, intervening often enough or soon enough. Um, and and there's so much stigma around it that mothers aren't necessarily comfortable coming forward. It's very embarrassing to come forward and do it. I know people who've had this in their homes and had their wives say, I didn't want to bother you with it. And I didn't want to make a big deal out of it. And it is a something that can be addressed and how you ask the question. And like you said before, that acute listening and listening between the lines is what it takes. If you're in a rush, you're not going to get the information. You have to, in a way, almost lead the witness and say, did you know that, you know, studies show 30, 40 percent of women, I'm, I'm making up a number here, I don't know the exact number, experience postpartum depression. Here's how it might manifest itself. And uh, it's easily curable. Have you had any of these feelings? 
Like if you ask right. it that way, you've just given you, permission for them to understand yes. that they have a one in three chance and it's no big deal because we can handle it. Right. It, it's about having that um, it, that dialogue versus right. um, everything being procedural. Uh, so it's all about having conversations with patients and understanding to, like how to meet them where they're at. Um, we do a lot of, well, one of the components of the enterprise tool for a health system partner is a set of screenings and uh, the checklist, all of that sort of stuff. So they can kind of configure what they need, what they're missing. Mm-hmm. A lot of times we go into places, it's not like they don't have anything. They'll say, okay, we've got some behavioral education programs for mothers. Um, as long as we uh, diagnose them, as long as we know they need help, we can get them into help, but we don't have a good way of identifying them fast enough. Okay, great. Well, why don't you introduce those digital screenings and start yeah. inviting everyone to participate and do the screening um, through their phone. Uh, you know, yeah. within we, we do a five day, seven day, 10 day, 14 day postpartum check ins. And then yeah. beyond that, uh, to make sure that we're catching people as they're experiencing these different phases of mm-hmm. the postpartum recovery period um, for th- it's it's kind of crazy and, and a little bit sad still that that is uh, still revolutionary to a lot of hospitals and health systems. It's but that's lot. where we're at right now. Yeah. And it, there's a lot. I mean, in fairness to them, there's a lot going on. And they're probably starting with what they think is the most important. They they think getting the baby, you know, into the world safely is the number one job. That might be actually correct, and it just might be that these, you know, the seventh, eighth, ninth thing on the list they just don't get to, or they don't have the resources to focus on. It might not actually be malice. It just might be they're overwhelmed or they're under resourced. I mean, I would like to think that. I don't know if I'm correct or not. I, I think you are. I think that yeah. that is uh, there's a sort of a linear. Um, progression when you're right. introducing innovation like this into an enterprise. They're not going to tackle everything at once. They're going to say, wait, where, what was our roadmap? Oh, we were already going to focus on this. And it can sometimes be um, the the challenge of the, of the company, you know, the startup mm-hmm. to uh, figure out a way to support that project while also saying, we also do this for you. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So hey, like, we're throwing in this. that too. Right. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and that's part of the, the sales experience. Like for me right now, I'm learning how to be, you know, an enterprise salesperson that that's not my background. I mean, I come from law and business, public policy. I yeah. was in an uh, ed tech startup before this, but I wasn't on the sales side of that. And, um, and now I'm learning how to sell this in, understanding that there are some very serious problems, but not everyone's tackling the same stuff at the same time. Right. So you have to, um, introduce your solution in a way that is immediately beneficial to these very large organizations um, while also saying, by the way, did you know technology can do this for you too? <laughs> right. And wait, there's more. Right. Exactly. Might I be able to interest you? Yeah. Well, I mean, and yeah. then, you know, going back to the Uber example or, you know, the, the Postmates example, you know, like just being able to tip or being able to ask for service and get a refund or I wasn't taking the exact route. That took a little while for consumers to even learn that, oh, I got an email back. And if it didn't look on the map, that was why they sent the map was because if you send the map to people and they see it visually in their email and the receipt, they can go, wait a second. I went all the way around Paris and then came back into the center of the city. That doesn't look like the straight route. And it's like hit reply if you want to change this, right? Tell me about getting Serena Williams as an investor and and what that's like because we had the mind-blowing Mark Cuban experience. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> Serena is uh, – I know Alexis uh, O'Hannon. He's been on the prod um, and he's been very vocal as well. And she has as well. There's a Netflix special mm-hmm. about – she almost died in childbirth and then she went back to play tennis six months later and just well, starts she's crushing everybody. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, unbelievable. But, I mean, she almost died and she's very public about this. Was that the reason she invested? How did she get in touch with you? And, and what's it like to have – I think arguably the world's greatest a- greatest athlete. I mean, it's I either her so. or LeBron, right? Who's? I mean, look, actually, she's got many more championships than LeBron, so I guess she is. It's probably her, LeBron, Tiger. I mean, I, I think that I think objectively she's dominated her sport more than anybody. She's amazing, uh, and Leaving she's the door an icon open for LeBron. And oh, Tiger Woods to invest. No offense. <laughs> yes, come on, come all. Um, <laughs> well, no, I'll say this: that the the process of uh, getting to know uh, Serena and Serena Ventures, her fund, her team, um, and understanding what uh, led her to make an investment was in itself um, a, an amazing experience. The The silly thing about how it all got started is that we, we received an email. I, I got an, an email. I think it was like to the general inbox maybe. Info at. 
Yeah. <laughs> and um, at that time, her her fund hadn't announced. They didn't have like a website. They didn't. People didn't stealth. know. Yeah, she was in stealth. Yeah. She'd already made about thirty different investments really? and wow. was uh, very active in seeking deals and and working with companies. But um, at that point in time, they didn't have a website. So I get this email. It's like, hey, we're interested in what you're doing. We heard good things from some other people. Uh, can we set up a call? And I'm. I went to go look at the website, like, you know, attached to the email address and nothing showed up. And I thought to myself, okay, this is just, this is totally a prank. Like, I don't even, <laughs> there there are other funds that have similar names or, you know, things like that. So um, it did not occur to me that it might actually be Serena Williams. It, wow. it just, I, looking back and I was like, so absurd. Don't tell me you deleted the email. I, I, I just ignored it. I didn't. Oh. <laughs> I just, yeah, well, I was like, okay, this is it. I'm not going to respond. Um, at that time, we had a lot of uh, interest coming in. The yeah. round was uh, was sort of picking up steam. It wasn't, um, it, like, it wasn't anywhere near being done yet. You know, we were still bringing folks in and getting to know different investors. But um, I didn't know that anyone had referred us to her team. So anyway, uh, a couple weeks later, Arlen Hamilton um, sends an email and she's like, hey, did Serena Williams reach out yet? And I'm like, Oh my gosh! Oops. The, yeah, uh, total big oops. oops. So I said, "Oh, I'll, I'll get right on that." <laughs> Find that you know it's like way down in the inbox. With Serena Williams. Yeah, she's like, "Oh, I recommended you a couple weeks ago to them." <laughs> like, oh, oh no! no. <laughs> and so I replied back on that original email, like, "Why yes, you know, like, we'd love to she's schedule got a, a call." She's got a team. I mean, but. Yeah. It, I didn't, there was no information. There was no information who was on her team. There's like no LinkedIn accounts. They're like, I work for Serena Williams. Nothing like that. So it was totally in stealth mode at that time. Since then, the fund has a website. They've gone public with all of their investments. People now are very aware that she is an active investor in, um, in tech and in, and in, you know, companies like ours. But, um, at that time it wasn't there. So we did a couple of calls with, um, with her fund manager, um, and with other folks. I'd actually already met Alexis, um, by that point. So, um, but I hadn't met Serena yet. And then, uh, there was an opportunity, I guess that they were getting close to making a commitment. And I said, well, I, I want to talk to Serena. Yeah. And that was apparently, that was like a little bit of a surprise. Like, well, we already told you we're interested in, you know, yeah. you don't, she's busy. I mean, that's yeah. what she's, she's very busy. It was yeah. tennis season. Like, I mean, it's, you know, it's all, yeah. it's, she was doing other stuff. And I I want to understand why she wants to invest. Yeah. This isn't, uh, I imagine this isn't just about her own personal story. Yeah. I mean, if she's making an investment in a company like ours uh, to, you know, with the, the amount it's that she was interested. Right. Exactly. Like this is a company looking for yeah. investors. So, um, uh, yeah. And so that was like, wait, Okay, we'll set up a video call. So I got to have this video call with Serena Williams. That was our first interaction. I've since met her and spent time with her, Did and she's you just phenomenal. Faint. Oh my! Well, when you I were couldn't on the video call. With her. Yeah, I was. Oh gosh, I mean, that's got to be nerve wracking. Uh, she's so iconic. She is, and and she. Well, what's she like um, in person? What's she really like? She's down to earth. She's passionate. She is. She's um, she's down to earth, and uh, I mean, she asked. She asked all the questions that you'd want an investor to ask about a company like this at this stage. And um, it felt so real that I was speaking with someone who wanted to be an investor in this company, not just whatever. I I mean, not that I, I had particular notions going in, but I wanted to just understand what the relationship could be like with her and her team yeah. and that they saw the um, the business model opportunity here, that they saw the mission of the company as being more than just a headline um, that would make great press kind of thing, you know, mm -hmm. someone taking on the maternity healthcare crisis, you know, um, that that this was bigger than that. And um, and she was all of those things and her team as well. I mean, we've had the privilege of working with the folks that she works with and um, they've made so many introductions, um, even just, uh, just the other day, another introduction to someone um, – uh, at the federal level in, um, yeah, in, uh, U.S. government. And um, these are the things that actually start to to uh, build a company like ours out of our starting point in Los Angeles and create the platform for a nationwide rollout. Yeah. It is, you know, people talk about celebrity investors. The thing that they're able to do is get attention for a company, and attention can lead to employees, customers, uh, and future investment. And the network, I mean, if you need to contact anybody, if they get an email from Serena Williams, they're opening it. 
Yes. Yeah. Especially if there's a website. You yeah. know, which I think they see it's up on the screen right now. They seem to have figured out how to get a website up and running. It looks pretty great. Uh, oh, she's an investor in the wing too. That's pretty awesome. Yeah. Are you a member of the wing? Yes. Uh, well, there's, um, I mean, yeah, just. Yeah. Yes. I would say actually a few of the different companies in the portfolio um, are the kind of companies that we have wanted to partner with, like, and haven't necessarily had direct ties. So when you talk about network, it goes beyond just the um, sort of the, the sales and partnership opportunities there um, with potential customers. It actually is, it goes down to other companies that share um, a mission like ours, whether they're focused on women's health, particularly, or women's, uh, women-focused communities like the wing. Or really beyond that, and just well wellness. You know, understanding that healthcare is needs to be bigger than than just insurance companies and hospitals. It's yeah. a lot more than than that, and that's where a lot of the new value is going to come from. All right, the big unlock for you is obviously getting uh, medical clinics, hospitals, medical providers to pay you to implement the software. Mm-hmm. And so, if anybody's listening. It's a couple hundred thousand of you. And uh, you know somebody who works at one of these clinics who works in the business of being born. In the health system. Health in, system. Um, they can email you. Yeah. Melissa at, at mommy.com. Mom. Yeah, that's you it. You got the first name at mommy? Nobody else in the company took it? <laughs> CEO got to have it? <laughs> well, I was the first person for a real long time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, always founders were like, how do I get in touch the only with this person? person? Yeah. I'm like, first name at company name? Tend to go to the founder. Yeah, really. No, of course, our CTO is like, well, we need to start uh, switching up the email so not everyone just first name. You know, that, yeah. you go through that whole phase. Of yeah, the first people get the... first name. Yeah. So if you want to reach anybody at Facebook or Google, it's going to be Sergey at Google.com. <laughs> uh, and then everybody else gets first name dot their last name or first name last initial. Yeah, I uh, invite people to reach out um, if they're inspired too? by the mission. We are hiring. I mean, right. that's the big, what do you need? the biggest thing. Developers? Uh, we are currently hiring in sales. Um, marketing, sales, okay. um, community partnerships. We love folks that are mission driven, even if they aren't necessarily or um, directly tied to this cause or have experience with this, but they are interested in mission-driven companies and can get behind something like this. Um, we want to bring folks in uh, that get that this is uh, this. this you know, is a mission-driven company. Um, software uh, product, mm. um, we're hiring Everything. on... Yeah, I mean, well, I'd say on all fronts. I mean, yeah. this we've been on a shoestring budget for so long and having this kind of funding um, has opened up a ton of doors for us. So yeah. we will be going to uh, multiple states this year with regional partnerships in different, different communities. We're going to continue expanding um, outside of Los Angeles, um, work our way up to the Bay Area. Great. Um, we won a competition last year through UCSF that was an innovation in, innovation uh, pitch competition and um, looking at uh, some work up here. you got to get the Zuckerberg Chan um, Foundation involved. Because they uh, did the hospital up here, mm-hmm. and so did yeah. Benioff, and then they both listened to the pod. So yes, uh, well, we would love to do work here. I know there's a, a lot of initiatives that are happening in the Bay Area already, um, but one of the big challenges that we've seen so far, which is why we're interested in coming up here, um, is is around care coordination. So you have all these great on the ground community programs that the hospital w- wants to be tied to, wants to send patients into, because the hospital can only do so much within, you know, within inside the building. People go home. They need care at home. They need care within yeah. their community. Mommy becomes the glue that connects these pieces together. Amazing. Uh, the founder, Melissa Hanna. Yeah. No, Hannah. Sorry, my dyslexia. Hannah. <laughs> Two N's. And uh, the company is Mommy. And it's phonetically spelled because that's a great way to get a killer domain. M-A-H-M-E-E dot com. M-A-H-M-E-E dot com. Thanks for coming on the pod. Thanks for doing something important for moms and for fighting the good fight. Um, And I wish you continued success. Thank you. All right. We'll see you all next time. Bye-bye.